0: You're listening to Endeavor Against Extremism, brought to you by The Clarion Project. I'm your host, Shireen Kadosi. I've always felt that the power of stories could never be underestimated. Stories are are the most human thing about us, and if we can understand our crises at this point using a framework of stories and narratives, by speaking to real people, by understanding the real conversations that really should be happening at this hour that aren't always brought to you, then we can perhaps endeavor to understand our world today and our place in it, as well as learn the skills to build the world that we want so that we don't have to go the route of other groups of people who have felt that in times of extreme stress and duress, the only way to survive was to become more extreme
1: what is terrorism? Terrorism is political violence. So if our counter-terrorism strategy isn't dealing with the political element of political violence, then I think it's it's barking up the wrong tree. My name's Liam Duffy. Uh, I work in counter-terrorism and counter violent extremism, or CVE, in the UK. Um, I used to work in the UK's um, domestic terrorism prevention strategy, or as domestic CVE strategy, which is called Prevent, um, in the kind of last year or two I've worked for a educational charity which did um kind of pve and cve programs in education um and then more recently I've been uh, at a think tank in Westminster uh in London working on extremism related stuff and doing a lot of training and advising for police and government um not just in the UK I've been working on a project in East Africa as well um with Hidayah, which is the kind of global center of excellence for CBE. Um, so I've been working on uh, helping civil society build their capacity against um, radicalization and extremism in Kenya, um, and writing and saying lots of silly things and causing trouble wherever I can.
0: Liam, it's great to have you. I've been following your work on, on Twitter and your other interviews for quite some time, and you're really an exceptional mind when it comes to the PVE sector. And so we're really delighted to have you here today. I wanted to jump right in and and bring up this uh, coronavirus pandemic and the way that extremists, specifically ISIS, is capitalizing on it. ISIS is hopscotching from talking about how uh, China deserves it because of its abuse of the Muslim population to then when it spread to Iran, well, Allah is punishing Iran for being Shia. Then when it came to the West, it's because of Western imperialism. How do you counter a strategy that adapts to to the events on the ground so rapidly? How do you how do you really challenge that?
1: Mm, um, well, I think that there's obviously been a lot of. I mean, we're we're kind of um, a, f- a friend and colleague of mine, uh, Simon Cotty, who's an academic at the University of Kent. He wrote a bit of a provocative article um, about pandemic porn um, in Foreign Policy magazine, where he said, you, you know, we're kind of addicted to these graphs, these charts every day showing the amount of deaths and addicted to the stories of suffering. And uh, uh, it was was a bit provocative, but I I thought it was interesting. And I think we've weirdly seen an element of that with um, all of our other news and all of our other analysis, where we are kind of having to filter everything through a coronavirus prism Um, to try and otherwise there's there's just no kind of column inches in any newspaper or any media Um, if it's not got the coronavirus spin on it then we're kind of um, it's just not of interest to the public right now so in in counterterrorism we've seen a lot of how a terrorist group's going to respond to coronavirus uh, and whether it's ISIS whether it's al-qaeda whether that's um, far-right groups in the US or in Europe Um, and it's a question I've been asked a lot in the last few weeks (laughs) Uh, and I honestly, the, the honest answer is I have no idea. Um, and I think there's there's just a lot of uncertainty right now, like not even the kind of epidemiologists around the world, like nobody really knows what the world is going to look like in a few weeks. Um, so as much as we've seen analysis of, of how ISIS is responding to coronavirus, I just, part of me thinks it's just too early to say. Uh, and the other thing, you know, it's too early to say, but at the same time, they're not some mythical beast. They are human beings, and like the rest of us, we're doing this over Skype, and probably neither of us have left our homes for uh, a long time. Like the like the rest of us, we're we're adapting. Um, so they'll they'll adapt as well, and they'll find ways to live with this new reality. Um, and of course, you know they they love to say whatever's happening in the world is is um, God's will and divine punishment. Um, but in terms of how they will actually exploit what's going on I don't know I don't know what implications that has for western publics and and radicalization in in western countries um there's been a lot of conjecture about um people you know being at home more so they're going to be a more vulnerable target for online recruiters and things and I uh, again I just think it's way way too early to actually say that with any um conviction in
0: an interview with Stephen Knight of the Godless Spellchecker podcast. You brought up a really fascinating point that touches on all of this. That jihadist ideology is inspired by Western adventurism. At least that's what people believe. And the idea is that maybe if we were a bit nicer, we could, you know, we could maybe stop jihadism. And what we're seeing with this hopscotching narrative is that it doesn't matter what we do; they're going to adapt to whatever narrative suits them the best. What you brought up in the podcast was that that entire idea that it's Western adventurism that has uh, caused jihadism is, is a very Anglo-centric worldview, and there's a lot of evidence to the contrary. You specifically said that jihadists are pissed off, yes, but they're pissed off about foreign policy in the 15th century. And you're one of the first people outside of a Muslim audience that, or a Muslim background that has really been bold enough to talk about history and possibly even talk about ideology within within the theological context. Would you say that history and theology are part of it and when we're talking about the apocalyptic worldview that a jihadist has, there is a sort of underlying assumption that that does piggyback onto theology on some level or their interpretation of it. It does piggyback onto the occult, the, the idea of what is God and the divine. These are much broader concepts that I know in my experience as a Muslim reformer, nobody aside from, at, at least myself, has wanted to publicly touch this with a 10-foot pole. You <laughs> are an exception. What What is it about this, um, in this entire aspect, that makes you so bold enough to say this? And and can you elaborate on that idea a little bit more that they are pissed off about something that's far older than anything <laughs> that we can possibly conceive of right now?
1: Um, well, first of all, it's very kind to... to uh, say say that it's bold um i don't i don't feel like that but thank you um no i I mean i've i've thought about this and uh, there's a lot of reasons that people don't want to touch on it and i think a lot of them are well-meaning is that people don't want to um cause any kind of cultural cultural or religious insensitivity and that's perfectly uh perfectly laudable objective i think there's a few things that have made me more um unwilling to take that stance and and One of them is seeing Muslim reformers like yourself um, doing the work that you do and seeing the kind of abuse and grief that you get um, from uh, Islamists and identitarians and people on the left, um, kind of getting it from all sides. Um, And I just think, you know, when you when you look around the world, this is a few years ago, this was a bit of a niche point, but now it's become almost a bit of a cliche, but it's still true, is that the the Muslims around the world are the, the biggest victims of both Islamist and jihadist ideology. Um, without fail, they are they are the people who will be um, oppressed when these people um, take capture territory, whether that's in East Africa or in Mali, like we're seeing at the moment, or around Lake Chad, or we saw with the Caliphate in Iraq and Syria a few years ago. Um, you know, it's it's Muslims who are living under a jackboot um, when these groups hold territory, um, and then in the West, it's the Muslim reformers who get the abuse from the from the kind of the, the non-violent Islamists so um that's made me have a lot less patience for <laughs> for for skirting around the issue just seeing friends and colleagues on the receiving end of abuse um the other thing is and I, I don't know if this is a bit of a provocative point but I think there's a bit of a and it, it comes from a well-meaning place um but there's a bit of a uh, like an exoticization or fetishization uh, excuse I can't even say that word fetish like fetishizing excuse me of um, minority communities in the US or in Britain or in European countries. And um, once you really get over that and just accept that British Muslims are British and American Muslims are American, um, they just have a different faith to you, then you can start to talk about social issues within your own society in a, with a lot more comfort and a lot more ease. Um, it's It's when you have this kind of well-meaning but also actually quite discriminatory view that kind of infantilizes minority communities, then then um, that's what um, timidity comes from. Um, in terms of your other point about, basically the, the way to summarise it is we're damned if we do or we, and we're damned if we don't. Um, you're right, exactly as you said with coronavirus, a group like ISIS will try to attach divine will and divine justification to whatever's happening. Um, and in terms of military adventurism and foreign policy, we've seen this. So we saw that um, in the in the early 90s, in what was a really, really animating moment for global Islamism and global jihadism was the Balkans conflict. Um, the narrative there was that Western countries were letting Muslims be killed by Serbs and uh, Croat forces and, and, and all sorts on the ground in the Balkans. And. Um, so it was the 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 West not being willing to step in and save Muslims that was the animating narrative. Um, and then when it was Iraq and Afghanistan, it was, look, uh, the West is invading Muslim lands. But then, you know, when it came to Syria in 2012, 2013, 2014, the narrative was, look, the West is standing by as Muslims are being, uh, Sunni Muslims in this case, are being um, torn to shreds by the Assad regime and their kind of Iranian and Russian sponsors. So... Um, foreign policy is a grievance for sure for islamists it absolutely is um but it, it's it's less to do with us than it is more to do with their worldview and exactly as i said that you've referenced you know that this isn't necessarily just 21st century grievances that they're concerned with these are um these are things like the sheer sack of uh, sorry the the Mongol sack of Baghdad, which is blamed on the Shia and, um, wanting to reclaim the Iberian peninsula and wanting to reclaim lost territories in Europe as well. Um, so this is, this is a much, much longer horizon than we have in the kind of secular West.
0: I feel like that horizon is being broadened and, and just when you sort of reach it, it it's just, it gets pushed further back. And I love that you brought up the Islamist point because that entire sort of, uh, I hate this word. We can't. I can't say either. Fetishism of uh, <laughs> of Muslim communities is done by but is done by Muslim communities. And Linda Sorsor's book, for example, that just came out, um, "We Will Not Be Bystanders" or whatever it's called, is it's doing exactly that. Page after page is this this um, identity complex of oh, I'm Palestinian American. It's it's very insipid in the sense that it's not discussing ideas and philosophies and and just, it's not an inspiration in that way whatsoever. It doesn't handle the battle of ideas. It's using uh, popular culture, you know, the shoes someone was wearing, how, f- quote-unquote, fly someone looked. You know, it's, it's this sort of this hip-hop vibe of what it means to be Muslim. And even this idea of 9-11, which I know is a project very dear to you in terms of how to honor and uh, reflect on on that event, is, is 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 really reflected in, in the way that she talks about it. She a lot like a lot of other Muslims who are Islamists as well, talk about it in this very sort of romanticized way. You know, 9-11 happened and I was teaching the blind to read under under a rainbow. I mean, it's this sort of mythical uh, pre 9-11 land of of ponies and rainbows where everything was perfect and then this event happened and then their entire lives were turned upside down when in fact, if we tie this Islamism issue to the history and theology of what it means to be a Muslim, this has been going on for 1,400 years, this is just the next chapter of it. How do you how do you really address the issue of Islamism within the PVE sector for a community that doesn't want to believe Islamism is a problem or that it even exists?
1: Oh, uh, that's a big one. Um, so yeah, I think the, your point about um so I'm not too familiar with uh, Linda Sarsour, but um, the the point about this revival of identity is is a good one, um, and I think it's it's I, in some ways Islamist isn't the right word. Maybe maybe kind of Islamic revivalists is is a better word. So we have we have the jihadists. We know who they are. They're the, the, the Al Qaeda and the ISIS. But there's there's the revivalists as well, and in the West. That comes in the form of, um, particularly Jamaat-e Islami in, in Britain, which is the the, the kind of Pakistani um, Islamist or South Asian Islamist movement, and the Muslim Brotherhood as well. Their part of their strategy is to um, politicize and revive Muslim uh, or Islamic values, and and part of part of the way they do that is to politicize Muslim identity. And and what they're really good at doing is hijacking these kind of other identity causes, which you kind of have this, this nightmare cocktail now where we have this kind of campus identity politics, which is just um, a godsend for Islamists, in my view, um, because it it allows them to drive wedges between social and religious and ethnic groups more. Um, it The identity politics kind of picks on those seams that exist between uh, social, religious and ethnic groups. And... That's exactly what Islamists want to do as well. So they're quite happy to go in there with with a pneumatic drill instead of just a, a pick to, to pick at those seams. And I think that's that's really dangerous. Is that you know that that's getting so far away from the the ideas, the, the philosophies on which our modern democracies were were founded. In, in the way that um, citizenship is what bonds us in a nation state, not our not our religion, not our ethnicity, not our sexuality or anything like that it, it's it's the citizenship we're we're British or we're American um and that that's the common bond between us and and the more that's dug at the more fragmented that democracy becomes so I think um very pessimistic about identitarians on both the right and the left we have them on the right as, as well of course who are just racists and we recognize them for, for being that um, but the the kind of left identitarianism is is a lot more insidious and. Um, particularly in this country, in the UK, seen a lot more what you would call Islamist groups um, realising that and, and taking advantage of it. Um, in terms of how that works in the PVE space, um, or PVE and CVE, um, it's, a, it's a great frustration, to be honest. It's not. Um, I think, I think uh, to an extent the, the work we do in PVE and CVE has been impacted by public discourse, uh, in a negative way on this. So there's been, I mean, you know this as well as anyone, there's been like this kind of back and forth debate when there's a terrorist attack, you know, it's everything to do with religion or it's nothing to do with religion. So you have one people on one side going, um, talking about the sword verses in the in the Quran and the hadiths and things like that and saying, look, they're doing this out of purely religious belief. And then you have the people saying, you know, no, they're just marginalized, they're just alienated it's uh, it's other factors it's rebellion this that and the other um th- there's elements of truth and there's elements of lies in in both of them and um, what we're not, not doing is picking at that really um political element of this problem um so when we uh, look back at the 20th century and we look at some of the more active terrorist groups were, were marxist leninist groups in in uh europe and south america in particular like uh um red army faction in europe um nobody denied that they were seeking an alternative political system and, and they were seeking uh, to implement an alternative uh, worldview. But we, we kind of do that with Islamists and, and jihadists. And um, and things like identity that you've just mentioned are, are inherently political. So we're we're staying away from the, the political. But what what is terrorism? Terrorism is political violence. So if our counterterrorism strategy isn't dealing with the political element of political violence... Then I think it's it's barking up the wrong tree.
0: How do you deal with the political element? How do you introduce that? Say you've got thirty seconds to speak to a congressman here in the states. How do you convey that importance in a way that brings it home to them?
1: Um, so we're just talking about Islamism. Islamism, I would say. Um, let's let's use the example of Marxist Leninism. So we we know that. Um, Marxist-Leninist groups want to overthrow the existing social order and replace it with a, a, work, a dictatorship of the proletariat that will lead to a worker's paradise. It's this utopian narrative. Um, white supremacists want a white ethno state, and that's a utopian vision for them. Islamists want a, a global Islamic caliphate or a religious state in the area that they govern. That's a, that's a completely utopian narrative. But what is that? It, it's underpinned by an interpretation of religion, but that is a political... Objective: You want to overthrow the democratic nation state and replace it with uh, an Islamic state in uh, in the Middle East. It's obviously less less democracy, but it's overthrow the existing regime and replace it with uh, a a a government government governing along excuse me a government governing according to Sharia. So um, I think that that just yeah. I don't know how else to put it. That that to me is a political political objective.
0: The, the trends I've seen when it comes to setting up sort of a, an Islamic state or an Islamic government has really shifted. So, for example, we had, when I first started in this sort of realm in the early 2000s, the, the fear was uh, creeping Sharia or a Sharia takeover of the US. And how that narrative has evolved has, is really fascinating because now we're not... We're not seeing the typical players advocating for a sharia Islamic caliphate in the U.S. We've got someone like Ilan Omar, whose mere presence is, is so provocative in, in the things that she says. But more importantly, beyond the, the one or two Congress uh, women, you've got people who cannot be pegged so easily as Islamists who are now advocating for local government, like you mentioned, and even just the, the municipality of, let's say, a, a town, advocating for an Islamic rule within that town, which is actually more in line with what Sharia was, which was very, very unique for from region to region. Mm. And so we're seeing that play out, and it ties into something that you said in another interview where you mentioned that at one point Al-Qaeda, for example, which was the, the pinnacle terror group that everyone became familiar with immediately after 9-11, was seen as this weird, ragtag, novel, strangely-dressed, mysterious group in the Afghan mountains, and suddenly we wake up in July of 2005 and we realize the people who've just blown up the transit system in the UK were from yes were were from West Yorkshire. So how do you reconcile the idea that you know these are people who've grown up in democratic ideals, these are people who are British or American in, in every sense of the word on paper, but now they're adopting an eighth century ideology.
1: Hmm. Um. Well, yeah. I think you, so. You mentioned that the the creeping Sharia um, thing, and that's that's become such a kind of cliche far-right narrative in, in the last few years. Um, and that in itself has been really unhelpful in stressing the importance of this problem, because when when you say Sharia, uh, I don't know what it's like in the US, but when you say Sharia in Europe, you sound like a far-right nutter. Um, so it, and it's made it very difficult, but obviously what, what Islamists actually do want is to implement Sharia. Um, the other reason that's unhelpful is that um, it's not it's not necessarily that they are trying to introduce Sharia in America or, or Britain or France. It's, um, it's that Islamist groups like the Muslim Brotherhood see, see Sharia as an inevitable consequence of their immediate agenda. So it's not that they're, they're necessarily actually trying to, um, you know, have Sharia law in, in the communities that they govern. They are trying to reassert, um, reassert what they see as Islamic values and, the more they do that at some point, probably well after they're dead and buried, at some point in the future, the logical conclusion, the inevitable conclusion of that will be um, a, a, a religiously governed state. Um, the second part of your question was, um, I, actually, sorry to, to carry on with that. I think there's there's a really interesting debate going on in France at the moment on this, where uh, President Macron, uh, who's seen as kind of this this liberal pin-up, this liberal poster boy, um, is is taking quite a hard line on, on this topic in particular, um, com- especially compared to other European leaders. Um, some of that is probably cynicism because he doesn't want to lose the ground to the far-right parties in, in upcoming elections. Um, but also there is a serious national debate going on in France about this topic. Um, and they, I think the, the phrase that Macron used is, uh, is Islamic separatism. Uh, and it's this idea that they're that Islamists are trying to drive a wedge between um, kind of secular French values and French society and Muslim communities that they want to um, have have sole leadership and sole dominion over. So I think that that's quite an interesting term, Islamic separatism. And I don't I, I don't think I, I lived in the south of France for a little while. Um, I don't think there's anything on that scale happening in either Britain or America. Um, but it's sure, it's certainly an interesting concept when you look at the way that I think a lot of French cities are a lot more ghettoized. Um, so, when you have both elements of the far right and Islamists who are quite happy to scythe off those ghettos uh, from the rest of society and, and silo them and make them these little islands of, of, of uh, one particular community, um, that is an interesting way of putting it. And it'll be interesting to see how Macron pursues that in particular. And it will be interesting to see if other European countries follow, um, follow his lead. Again, Britain and America is very, very different. A um, lot more integrated societies, I think. Um, very, very different. So I, I don't think we're in the, the... I don't think it would be an appropriate term for an American or a British leader to use, but in France, but, but potentially. Um, in terms of the 7-7 bombers, I, I think you're right that. And uh, to a lesser extent, Madrid the year before that, um, it it was this weird idea, you know. We had we had troops stationed over and or oh, deployed over in Afghanistan, fighting uh, the Taliban, and it was all a bit curious, you know. We hadn't really seen, you know, especially people my age who uh, didn't didn't or our age I should say who didn't didn't live through the um, Soviet Afghan War, like this this these pictures of Taliban fighters. You know, it's all a bit curious, all a bit strange, uh, and all a bit alien. Um, I think that that was the narrative was that this was a bit of a far away threat. You know, it was it was people a long way away launching attacks in in, against Western targets. But what what we've missed a little bit and still miss is that that 9-11 was was kind of catastrophic for Al-Qaeda's leadership because the next few years they spent entirely on the run getting picked off by special forces, US special forces operators and drone strikes. And a lot of them ended up in Guantanamo Bay where they where they still are. Um, but what 9-11 was more importantly than being a strategically good decision for Al Qaeda's central leadership, it showed a new ideology to the world. Um, and that that jihad, what we would call jihadism, is is actually not new. You know, like I said, we'd seen people go and fight jihad in Bosnia in the 90s in Chechnya. Um, there's Probably groups throughout the 19, 18th, nineteenth, twentieth century that you would now recognize as jihadist. Um, but what Bin Laden did was said, actually, we've we've got this global brand, and it's perfectly possible to attack um, the faraway enemy, the United States um, or or Britain, because these are actually, if you if you drill back all the problems and all the ills afflicting the Muslim world, you can draw them, trace them all the way back to the United States, to Washington D.C., to New York, to London. Um, and that was a very, very different brand of, of kind of Islamist and jihadist thought than had ever been really showed off to the world. So while it was bad for al-Qaeda's leaders, it was very good for the jihadist movement. And I think, just as a final point, I think we miss that sometimes when we say, um, "Well, look at all the blood and treasure we've, we've spent and lost in the war on terror when there's more jihadists now than there, than there were on 9-11. Um, yeah, that was the point that was the point of 911 that was the genie out of the bottle um i think what was going to happen and what was coming was it was going to happen regardless of any global war on terror that the west launched
0: yeah i think Sorry. it was no, inv- no it was inevitable i think 911 just put it on the map and it it forced open that that Pandora's box of things that were happening arguably well before 911 it just brought it into public consciousness and it made the Issue unavoidable, but on the other side of the you know the the door is the fact that because 9-11 happened, uh, there are so many of us, including myself, who completely deviated from my plan, which was a very cushy law firm job and going to law school, and you know probably dipping my toes in the sand right now, and instead ended up in this mess because you realize that yeah, masochist right? Like you realize <laughs> that there is a problem, and what a lot of us did was we realized that we didn't really understand our faith. We didn't really have answers for it. And it just raised this this huge, giant question mark of what is Islam? And so that has led to a counter-movement of folks like myself and, and others, many others, I would say this entire idea of reform is so much bigger than just the 10 people that you see you know, carouseling back and forth on, on media segments, is that there is a question of what is this? And so when it goes to um, bin Laden's, for example philosophy of America being a problem well America's only existed for such a period of time the West is only in its modern form only existed for a certain period of time these problems are so much older and and these are very simple rational conversations that can be had without antagonism with someone who would be vulnerable to extremism or is already echoing those extremist talking points however because voices like mine are so few and far between and we're not really platformed unless we we echo the talking points of a, a political party one way or the other, you don't get exposure. And you don't get exposure also because you mentioned the ghettoization of communities, which we're seeing in the U.S. as well. We're seeing it not on the same level as, as in Europe, but we're seeing it where certain ethnic communities are just so um, entrenched within themselves, and it's very difficult to access them. The Somali community in Ilan Omar's uh, 5th district of Minnesota is a perfect example of that, I live in Orange County, the same issues are happening here where it is very, very hard to get into another uh, Muslim community that may not be of my South Asian descent. It's very, very difficult. And so I can't access those communities as easily. And when you can't access them, you can't have these conversations. And when you can't have these conversations that are quite simple, actually, then those communities are vulnerable to extremist talking points in your experience what is what are those extremist talking points looking like and, and how do those recruiters operate for for targeting um, let's say uh, a youth a 14 15 year old or 20 25 year old i mean what does that look like from
1: your experience mm um well, what what Islamists do is they deploy narratives and what they will do is is deploy those narratives in a the the narratives are global they're very global like we talked we talked about bin laden holding um the united states the, the crusader zionist alliance as he called it um led by the united states and israel um he he held that crusader zionist alliance um the us and israel responsible for those those problems that state of disrepair and humiliation in the muslim world but what what local islamists will do uh, let's let i'll I'll use jihadists here to be to be careful so we know we're we're talking about actual kind of recruiters for terrorism Um, they will harness that narrative in a local sense so you know um i think in the in business uh, in the private sector there's this there's this term global globalization where you kind of tailor a global um, product or system to local conditions um to make it appropriate for the market in those in that local area that's exactly what islamists do so um in the uk there's um um big furore about um or there, there has been for a long time about the impact of stop and search which is a police power on um on minority communities in particular and i think there is genuinely data to support the fact that minority communities are more likely to be on the receiving end of stop and search powers by by police um, so what what these groups will do is say that um, these these overreach by the police and overreach by the state is actually you know all part of this narrative. So um, you know the, there's a guy there's a there's a there's a preacher in an area where I used to work who was very very keen on making out that all the terrorism offenders in British prisons were actually innocent and they had been framed. Uh, you know they were just. When they were out training in the woods um, for jihad, he would say they were just on a paintball trip, or when they were trying to go to uh, East Africa to join Al shabaab they were just going on safari. And because of Muslim persecution in this country, they've been um, they've been arrested and convicted and thrown in prison. So it's this it's this very localized but global narrative. You know, there's there's no difference between what is happening to you here, or not that there's no difference, but what is happening to you here in in London. Or New York or Orange County is is an extension of what's happening to um, our brothers and sisters in Gaza, in Kashmir, in Iraq, in, in Afghanistan. Um, and you mentioned the 7 7 bombers, these guys uh, that were the ringleaders from Yorkshire. Um, he said in his martyrdom video, I am directly responsible for avenging my Muslim brothers and sisters. A, a, a social worker from West Yorkshire saw himself as having to. Um, Having to fight back for things that were happening thousands of miles away, so that's that that's that kind of globalized globalized um, narrative that is most misdeploy. And I think that's that's a really powerful one. Vi- the idea of victimhood and grievance uh, is really really powerful, and um, particularly in, in PVE, I mentioned I mentioned this that we talk a lot about marginalization and alienation as being um, potential drivers of radicalization, but we always do that from a a, a kind of Uh, an introspective perspective if if that's not a tautology but we always think what what are we doing that's making these people feel marginalized or alienated and not asking what the kind of islamist narratives that are being deployed are doing to make people feel disenfranchised and alienated and marginalized Um, so i you know there's a very a lot of different factors going on but that's a really really common one
0: you mentioned there's a, as a result of this there's a lack of attention paid to the ideological challenges by framing it as an individual vulnerability issue. That when we're focusing just on vulnerability and the grooming problem, that we're not paying attention to the ideology. So when we're looking at PVE, because I know you've you've really developed um, some incredible PVE programs, and, and I think one of them you did in what 48 hours, which is which is um, really just uh, it was just incredible. How do you how do you develop a PVE program that or UCV program that looks at both vulnerability, recruitment, and also the ideology.
1: Mm. Well, um, that, actually, that's probably a mistake that that PV CV programs make, which is try to um, tick too many boxes at once. Um, I think I think in terms of the vulnerability question, there there, and, and particularly around the time that the the ISIS recruitment flows started going from Europe and North America. Um, the, that idea of vulnerability and grooming became really kind of fashionable, and it's it's understandable why because it was shocking. We, you know, you or I would look at um, this group that was beheading aid workers and journalists on the news uh, and enslaving thousands of women in, from Iraq's minority Yazidi community, and think, how on earth, how does that appeal to people, uh, neighbours, uh, fellow citizens? How, what are they seeing that I'm not? And I think that that idea that people were groomed or lured by these mysterious recruiters online was was a kind of comforting narrative that was built up around this. Um and what we did was we looked for particular cases where that clearly was what happened and used those as an example of, of the a typical situation. Um no, I, I think a good example of that is um there was a young lady called Shannon Connolly from Colorado who tried to go and join, uh, tried to get on a flight to Syria to go and join ISIS. Um, and from what I've seen just in, in kind of local media reporting, she, she does tick the box for vulnerable. She was a bit, um, a bit confused in life. She was hopped around from relationship, relationship to relationship and was a bit of a fantasist. And it seems that she struck up a relationship with somebody online who said that he could help facilitate her travel to Syria to join the jihad. but instead of seeing those as the more isolated cases, which is what they were, we we kind of applied that as as this is what's causing 900, in, in my country's case, 900 Brits to join uh, ISIS. But, um, you know, just just a few days ago, two days ago, uh, a guy called Abdel Barry was arrested in Spain. I don't know if you caught that on the news. He's a, a British ISIS fugitive. He's been on the run for five years. Um, a really, really terrible rapper before he became a jihadi um yeah he he was uh, as far i think there's rumors that he was the gym partner of jihadi john and he came from this this little pocket jihadi john being the guy who um executed james foley and, and other aid workers and journalists on on camera um, a guy from west london so there's this little pocket of west london where a lot of recruits came from um, jihadi john being one of them and this abdel barry being one of them but the other interesting thing about Abdel Bari is his his dad is serving a sentence right now in the United States for his role in the 1998 um, East Africa bombings. So the idea that you know people are just kind of being radicalized alone in their bedroom it, it just doesn't stand up to reality. It it does in certain cases, but it it's not it's fundamentally not the explanation for what happened in you know 2013, 2014, 2015 when we saw all these people go. Um, and it just really quickly, the other the other element of it is that, um, particularly with PVE and CVE, you really really rely on sectors of professionals who ordinarily would not want state counterterrorism policies infringing on their day job. So we're talking teachers, social workers, medical professionals. Um, teachers teachers do safeguarding for sure from all sorts of things like drugs and Gangs and other forms of crime. Um, the idea that they're suddenly involved in state counterterrorism is is very uncomfortable for a lot of them, and completely understandable. So I think framing it more as this vulnerability issue, um, you know, this is very cynical of me to say, and I shouldn't say it, um, but that helped to get a lot of support from sectors who wouldn't like counterterrorism infringing on their day job. Um, the pr- and that's perfectly fine. The problem is it it went too far it's gone too far um now i don't know what it's like with pv in the us but in the uk um there's this radicalization as a word has almost become synonymous with grooming which is a child sexual exploitation term it comes from you know uh plying a child with gifts and rewards in order to sexually abuse them um and these are two very very different social phenomena and i think making them synonymous with each other is, is um not a good idea. And I'll, uh, sorry, I, I said one final point, but I'll, just a very quick anecdote on this. Um, so, I, me with my kind of Western experience of, of uh, CVE, um, the last time when I was in Kenya a month or two ago, we're training civil society leaders there. Um, and one of their main points of feedback was that the way we were using the word radicalization or the way we were talking about recruitment to join Al-Shabaab in this case, which is the Al-Qaeda affiliate in Somalia, the way we were talking about it was removing the agency from the individuals who, who joined the group. We're making it seem like they had no choice. And I just kind of got into this habit, I guess. Of And I thought I actually reject that, but it appears by kind of osmosis, I picked up the same way of wording it. Um, and this the, the really fascinating thing to me about that is that the 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 parts of Kenya where people are being recruited into al shabaab have all the structural factors that you would think drive people to do drive people to radicalization they these people had every right to say this is a vulnerability issue there are human rights abuses there's extreme poverty there are extrajudicial killings um, by security forces along the uh, somali kenya border and along the coast, um, just, just by the whiff of somebody being in al-Shabaab. Um, and still, even with all that, this Kenyan audience said, Well, hang on, you're, you know, people still do choose to join a terrorist group, and people do still uh, or people still are ideologically committed adherence to this group. And I just thought that was fascinating, and <laughs> it was just such a contrast to the way that we framed it in the West.
0: It absolutely fascinates me as well. And, and this is one of the things that draws me to this work is just the question of human behavior. What makes someone do what they want to do? And yes, there's an influence. Yes, there's a vulnerability issue, which you're absolutely right. It does help primer the deeper conversations and it helps soften the deeper conversations. And I have had to do that myself when I'm talking to uh, civic leaders or teachers or just folks who typically don't understand the subject matter. It just... Um, Packages it in a way that that is palatable, and then gets you to a place where you can have maybe the the bigger conversations down the road. But if it isn't just vulnerability, like you mentioned, you know, it's the ideology. Two questions: What is it about the ideologies that is drawing people in? So if someone is choosing to be a part of this, you know, what what is the sort of underlying bedrock uh, appeal? for the ideology and then second is how do we sort of rewire and and reorient people towards focusing on on this other issue
1: Mm. well i think that like obviously the first thing to say is it it is it and again this is almost a cliche but it is very different from person to person the the reasons that that people do these things and it is um you know to to an extent and I do this myself in my work, we try and we try and come up with models to explain radicalization, like we'll look at push and pull factors. I'm sure you've come across that. Um, or we look at drivers like um ideology and grievance and things like that. Um, and to an extent not to sound too defeatist, part of me just thinks, you know, trying to simplify the reasons that human beings actually commit acts of violence is, is beyond a model Um, is, is beyond a model that said, we have to try because we have to go and we have to go and explain this to teachers, to police officers, to all sorts of different audiences. So we, we do, we have to come up with some sort of blueprint to work off Um, in terms of what makes people do this. Again, there are those people who are vulnerable, who are looking for excitement in their life or, um, or just look up to someone in their life um, who's in one of these groups. Um, but again, I think it, it comes back to these narratives that are deployed. One of them is this, this narrative excuse me, of persecution and oppression. Um, and if you feel like that, if you feel like you are persecuted or marginalized or oppressed in society, and there genuinely might be real reasons that you feel that you may have experienced racism, you may have experienced bigotry, um, you may have experienced police heavy handedness, um, but you also might perceive that you experience these things um, or you might perceive that these things are a problem. That's a really powerful narrative to make people want to fight back and do these things. So um, the kind of Islamist jihadist ideology is a a powerful locomotive to to latch onto if you do feel like there's oppression and marginalization. the problem is we, we we can, I think we've got to fix the societal problems that make people feel racism, make people feel discriminated against or make um, authorities heavy-handed with people. We do have to fix that, but we also have to fix the people who are deliberately trying, or not not fix, we have to fight back against the people who are deliberately trying to make people feel like that because that's really important and we really overlook that there are groups, individuals that are deliberately trying to make people feel a sense of dislocation and disenfranchisement. Um, The other one is this this idea of it being a utopian ideology. Like I said before, the the idea of a a global Islamic caliphate. And I think that's that's not that niche of an idea for some communities. Um, Again, most, most people who envisage that happening one day think it will happen a long time after their lifetime. Way after they're gone, it will be this kind of utopian, faraway vision. But, but if you do have that, if you do sympathise with that as a, as a global ambition, then when Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the, lead, the, the now deceased leader of ISIS, stands up at uh, the pulpit of Mosul Mosque in 2014 and says, we have restored the caliphate, this thing that you thought wasn't going to happen for thousands of years, hundreds of years, now exists and you should come and join it. That is a really resonant and powerful idea. And I think the, we did see spikes of people heading to join ISIS when he made that announcement. The biggest spike from around the world coincided with summer of 2014. And there were a few things going along, in, uh, going happening in summer 2014. One was the enslavement of y- the Yazidi community in Iraq, um, the other was the capture of Mosul and this seeming invincibility of ISIS. They seemed invincible at the time. I'm sure you remember on the, on the news. It was just wow, this they're they're siding through Iraqi security forces like a hot knife through butter. Um, but well, crucially, they also declared the restoration of the caliphate. So if that's an already resonant idea for you, that does have some power, and particularly if you're a young person with ambition and and uh, and and that sense of alienation and marginalisation. This this utopian vision. And I think I think I mentioned this in the other the other podcast that you've referenced that, um, throughout history, people have had different views on how to govern society. And and some people have had such different views that they have fought and killed and died for it. Um, I don't see how this is any different. People have an alternative worldview and they are willing to commit acts of violence to achieve it. That's actually quite common in human history. In fact, it it is human history.
0: I feel like part of the problem is, and, and you're speaking to this is, the lack of a counter message, and I think especially in the PVE-CVE sector, and even in the in the efforts to challenge Islamism, which I think is very much wrapped up into all of this as well, is we tell people, you know, this this behavior is a negative. Uh, don't go and join a terror group. Um, you know, these are the baddies, so to speak. But at no point do we really offer a counter message. The counter message that I do hear offered at large is. An appeal to human rights, which is such a vague concept. You know, we've got the Declaration of Universal Human Rights, which I don't even think goes far enough because it doesn't it doesn't really address um, some other issues that I think that we're still touching on the surface of, such as influence, such as uh, different levels of abuse and what that looks like. So I feel like the the counter message is lacking because we say either don't do this or you should appeal to enlightenment values, you should appeal to human rights values, which is so vague, but it's also something that repels a lot of these folks as well that typically would be drawn to to a terror ideology. Would you agree that there's a lack of a counter message that's just powerful enough? And, and how do we really fix that? Because what I saw in the counter message of our generation, you know, growing up in the 80s and in the 90s, was, for example, um, in fighting the war on drugs, it was don't do drugs. Like that really helped. Instead, when we had the assemblies on don't do drugs, I just learned about ten different drugs I could try when I go home. You know, if, <laughs> if my parents weren't so strict at the time. So that
1: was it, the table, mind you.
0: Right. Exactly. So <laughs> it's just um, it, it's just it didn't help with anything. It, it actually just fueled the problem a little bit further by educating on all the things that you don't want me to be educated on. And so, what can we do? A. Would you agree that counter message is is an area of deficiency? And B. What can we do to address that?
1: Yeah, I think um, yeah, I agree with you completely. Um, the the point you raise about human rights is really really interesting. Um, the this is a uh, this is a weird thing to say, um, but but terrorists are, are not bad people necessarily. They it's it they they actually think what they're doing is morally good and morally not just morally good. It's morally necessary. Uh, it's the necessary response um, to to injustice and oppression and things like that and um so is islamists from all the way from the spectrum from his butteria the muslim brotherhood all the way to um jihadist groups they have human they do have human rights framework they you know there's actually quite a lot of um thought thoughts and scholarly work gone into it it's just not the same one as like you said the the, the universal um declaration of, of human rights or western conceptions of human rights um, so to an extent here the, the first there's there's two problems the first is this idea that what we what we have now is is like a normal natural human condition which which is not um like this this the ideas of human rights and democracy that we have now are in their infancy in human history and there's no guarantee they're gonna survive um so we need to do our best to protect them um so acting like Oh, they've just been misled and if they hadn't been misled they would have the same they would share the same view of human rights as us is really naive um again it comes back to people disagreeing and f- being willing to fight for how to govern ourselves it just happens that in this case um there's one of the parties in that conflict believes that there's a divine will behind them as well um the other the other element of this is that um when, when we're dealing with narratives and you mentioned the, the word counter narratives, facts, facts don't matter. Um, that sounds like, um, God, what's his name? Is it Ben Shapiro in the U S who says that he says facts, facts don't, don't care, care about, about feelings.
0: feelings
1: yeah. Yeah. Um, like, so I don't want to sound like him, but, um, facts, facts really don't matter how all, all facts are little nuggets of data for human beings to interpret the world. Um, you can give people all the facts that they want, but people will interpret the world differently. That's why you have Democrats and Republicans. That's why you have Labour and Conservatives. So just saying factually, objectively, this is the objective truth really doesn't matter. You need to you need to build a narrative so we could talk all we want about human rights. But the Islamist narrative would say, well, you've got double standards because you talk about human rights. But look what you're doing in uh, look what you're doing when with your support of Israel and Gaza, look what your alliance with India is doing uh, in Kashmir, and you know you you have complete double standards on this, and we don't share your view of, of human rights. Um, so just saying objectively ours is better is is not going to work. It has to has to be woven into a narrative, um, and this is difficult. I'm not going to pretend to have the answer on what what the narratives are that we should be using uh, or, or deploying, but um, just going fact for fact or tit for tat really doesn't matter um and uh, so a a good example of this is is um the islamic state execution videos so um you know good innocent men like james foley alan henning from the uk and there was the jordanian pilot as well um uh, lieutenant Muaf al-kazazba from the jordanian royal air force he was um probably the most brutal out of all of those those that little flurry of execution videos he was burned alive in a cage and we look at that barbarity, and we say, um, again, how how does this appeal to people? What what? How sick are they? But but it's very calculated. That that video was 22 minutes long. The the execution was only about a minute long. The other 21 minutes was um, a complete justification for why what was about to happen was about to happen. Um, and it involved um, touring this pilot around um, sites that he had allegedly bombed and interspliced it with um, images of dead children, um, women crying for their dead children and things like that. So by the end of this video, you don't think this is a, uh, a kind of nihilistic display of barbarism. You you think this is justice if you're sympathetic. You think, actually, he's he's been crushing and burning people alive. Now, now what he's done to other people is going to happen to him, um, which is not a million miles away from the old old philosophy of eye for an eye. So um, this this tit-for-tat information war I don't think has much legs.
0: Yeah, and, and I love that you brought up the the way that they've woven the story to justify the tragedy and to soften you to the tragedy so that a lot more people would be less alarmed, a lot more sympathetic even than uh, than they would have been if they had just been given that one minute and, and you know uh, been done with it. And I think where the average person can really maybe see that because the idea of terror is still such a far-fetched thing for a lot of people. But when we look at Islamism, we see how Islamists operate the narratives they use. That is a much more tangible experience for a lot of people. And I think it comes to the idea of a story. You mentioned narrative, counter-narrative. I think these are essentially stories and where we're failing in our sector is storytelling in order to, defeat some of these these challenges, we need to be able to tell a better story. And I think that's where where we're really lacking and where I love that you mentioned that this can't just be a tit-for-tat fact war. It has to be something deeper than that. I want to ask you one last question. How did you get into PVE? And not so much from a technical timeline perspective, but what draws you to this work?
1: Uh, well, I think not dissimilar to what you said earlier. Um I was um, I was just about to start what would be high school in America um, when 9/11 happened and um, you know just unfolded on live television in front of me um, and that probably stayed with me for a long time and made me this this kind of I, I did um, studied some of this stuff at university and it kind of always came onto the radar but never fully um, and was always very interested by it and always very taken by it um and then i decided to do a master's degree um essentially because i wanted to stay longer at university and live the life like everybody does uh, but i decided to if i was going to do that i would at least do the master's degree in something that i was interested in so i did a, um, a master's degree on counterterrorism um and then years later I had the privilege of running an organization which was kind of founded off the back of the memory of 9/11 so um, it was a weird kind of circle of events um I did I did have a brief spell um, outside of the counterterrorism and CVE world um, and it just it didn't motivate me in the same way it didn't I, I don't know I couldn't couldn't put my finger on it but it didn't it didn't give me that um, its oh god it sounds a bit cringe doesn't it but it didn't give me that hunger to to or that ugh. Let me put it in a less cr- less cringy way. It it didn't interest me as much. Um, I, I don't think so it's I just cringe at all. Yeah. yeah,
0: no, I don't think it's cringe at all. I mean, do you ever watch Doctor Who? Like, are you a doc- are you a Whovian, Would you say? Um,
1: <laughs> I, I have seen it.
0: Okay, so there's this classic line where one of Doctor's companions, Rose, is is you know just went on all these adventures through time and space with this this mythical character of the Doctor, and she comes back into her quote unquote normal world. And she's sitting there with her, with her mom and her, her boyfriend at the time. And she's saying, you know, like, is this all there is? You wake up, you catch the bus, you go to work, you come home, you eat chips and you go to bed. And, and once you've experienced this rabbit hole of what the world is and the possibility it holds and how complex it really is, you cannot go back. It is its own drug. You cannot go back to quote unquote, the normal world. And I think in that sense, um, Folks like you and I have a lot more in common with extremists than one would imagine, but it's necessary. I had a friend of mine who
1: I've really, been called an extremist, so that makes right? sense.
0: It makes sense. A friend of mine who's a, who's just brilliant, a brilliant researcher who's written, co-written some of these pieces with me on PVE work. Uh, he was, you know, we were having a phone call and you know, I'm chopping up dinner, and he's he's kind of going through a list of uh, research he found, and he gave me seven traits for what makes an extremist. And he's going down the list of traits, and I'm just, by the end of it, I'm laughing. I'm like, you do realize this sounds like you and I right now. The same sort of life experiences that led one person to to sort of pick up one end of the battle versus another person on the other side of the world or other side of the street to pick up another end of that battle is, is really not that different. And I, and I think when it comes back to the question of human behavior, I think that might be where a lot of these issues converge. What is it about personal experience? What is it about vulnerabilities? What is it about an appeal to ideology? What is it about uh, the story that makes one person go one way and the other person move in a completely divergent pathway?
1: Mm. Well, I think uh, uh, if, I, if I could, I think that um, if we're, we're talking about things that, that, that drive you, I think you are absolutely right just a moment ago to talk about storytelling. And I think there's a lot of sociological theory on this that I'm not too familiar with, but there's this idea that humans do make sense of the world by storytelling more than more than data necessarily, more than just raw data. Um, and I think definitely as much as the visceral anger of terrorist attacks is a motivator, of, of course it is. And uh, um, I don't think there's anything wrong with feeling a visceral anger to terrorist attacks. Um, as much as that's a motivator, I think the, there's the story of how we got to this point is really attractive to me. The story of how, um, you know, and I'm not saying countries like Britain and America don't fall short of their values uh, or the, their aspirational values um, a lot of the time, in fact, because they do, but the, the values that we aspire to, this this how the the real fight over the centuries to have this freedom and liberal democracy that we have now, I actually think that's a really exciting story. That we are a bit wishy-washy about, and we're a bit um, Americans less so than Brits, but we Brits are a bit shy about this and a bit coy about it. And I, I think it's it's actually a, it's a rebellious and exciting story. It really is that that we've overthrown dictators and tyrants and monarchs, and people have fought and died for this for this freedom that we enjoy now. And and um, you know I haven't fully worked this thought out yet, but the more if we're talking about counter narratives, if we're talking about competing worldviews, why not try and sell what we have as this exciting and rebellious vision? Because it genuinely is. Um, And why not go through the history and show how it is an exciting and revolutionary system in human history? And that it does need to be defended. Because if people want excitement and people want uh, something to latch onto and defend, um, it's as good a cause as any, right? (laughs)
0: and oh my gosh i'm so glad you brought this up because there's whether it's this sector or whether it's the world at large and all the issues that are there you've got and we've seen this in the time of corona you had this meme that was going around about um uh lord of the rings and this conversation between gandalf the wizard and frodo and you know gandalf is saying that we have to do what we can do at this point It, it we can't um I can't remember the exact quote, but basically you kind of just have to make do, like we're born in this period and we have to kind of figure it out and deal with the consequences and, and move forward. But it goes to the the heart of so many um, uh, sort of self-sabotaging narratives that I that I hear in people, couch adventurers, I can call them, who sit around and they say, oh, I wish, you know, they'll sit there and they'll watch the movie, they'll watch Lord of the Rings, they'll watch Star Wars, they'll watch The Matrix, they'll watch whatever TV or storyline they want to watch and get lost in it and say oh gosh I wish I wish I was alive then I wish I could you know go into battle Game of Thrones is a great example I wish I could you know be in this in this house and go off to war and, and I wish I had this dragon to defeat but we have the same wars the same dragons the same evil wizards the same I mean we have all of that now it is actually a lot more intense and complicated and it's a layer cake of of uh, suffering and problems, and we have every opportunity and every resource. I and mean, we're not stuck in the shire, you know, two thousand miles away from from the eye of whatever it's called Sauron, that we have to go through this entire journey that that people can resonate with as as a journey. But the journeys look very different, but they're still very real, and they're actually much easier for us to fight should we choose to fight them should we choose to take on these take on these uh, pathways and so it's just it's an opportunity i think that we need to sort of get people to realize that you have exactly like you were saying you have an opportunity now to to be you know to have purpose and to have meaning and to defend something and i like what you're saying And i haven't heard it anywhere else where that you've got you've got the alternative to what jihadists are fighting for it just hasn't been identified and packaged beyond the uh the very vanilla uh, flavor of enlightenment and, and rationality and human rights which is i am all for those things but i'm also bored of hearing about those things can we talk about it in a different way
1: yeah agreed you lost me with the lord of the rings reference but agreed well,
0: we will not hold that against you i'm sure plenty of nerds <laughs> will be listening to this they'll get it <laughs> Liam, it was fantastic having you. Um, We would love to have you on again at some point. I'm sure some other disaster is pending and we'll have a reason to bring you back on.
1: (laughs) Sure. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight.
0: Absolutely. Thank you.